Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back first to our co-host and my fellow committee member, Professor Alison Leary. Hello Alison, how are you this week? Hi Rachel, I'm really well thanks. Busy week as usual. I wondered what your reaction was to the press conference given by Sajid Javid yesterday in response to rising numbers of cases of coronavirus. I think it's a worry for everybody, isn't it? So we've got rising case numbers, but also rising hospitalisations and deaths. And that's really putting pressure on the health system um, and also on social care, which is really being reflected in the workforce and certainly in the messages that I'm getting from members of the workforce and the stress that they're under. This afternoon, we're going to take a step back from some of those current pressures. And and after we spoke on a previous episode about gender, we're going to be looking at nursing through a feminist lens and how women's experience of providing and receiving healthcare differs from that of men. To discuss all that, we're joined by two very special guests. So first, welcome back to Leanne Patrick, who works in services for women suffering gender-based violence. She writes pretty regularly for Nursing Standard, And she's one of the leads of the RCN Feminist Network, where she tweets at Feminist RCN. Hello, Leanne. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be back. My favourite podcast. (laughs) That's good to to hear. (laughs) And the last time you joined us was back in April, Leanne. Has anything changed much for you since then? (sighs) I'm just keeping on, keeping on. A few bits and pieces here and there. I suppose the big news is that I've finally finished my master's, so I'm quite pleased about that. That's done and dusted. Uh, onwards and upwards from here, I'm sure. <laughs> Congratulations on finishing off the, the Masters. It's uh, it's such a hard slog, isn't it, when you're working at the same time? So we're also joined by Caroline Criado-Perez, award-winning writer, broadcaster and feminist campaigner. Hello, Caroline. How are you and where are you speaking to us from? Hi, Rachel. Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm speaking to you from my home, also in North Yorkshire. Excellent. God's own county, of course. So yeah, this week, you, so you've been in Durham and I know you've also been in Leeds talking yeah. about your most recent book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Now, we might all think that women are actually pretty visible in, in healthcare, but what mm. do you think the book has got to say to the nursing profession? I'm afraid women are not visible in healthcare, um, despite the fact that, of course, they make up the majority of the healthcare workforce. I know you said we weren't going to talk about coronavirus, but if I could actually talk a little bit about it. Absolutely. um, Because from the very beginning of the outbreak, I was inundated with messages from female healthcare workers complaining that their personal protective equipment did not fit them. Now, of course, as I'm sure everyone listening to this program will know, if your PPE does not fit, it's not doing its job of protecting you. And this matters in particular in the context of an airborne pandemic where the masks that healthcare workers are being given to protect them from the virus particles were not adequately fitting the faces of the female healthcare workers. Now, the the issue of PPE that's been designed mainly for men is something that I wrote about in Invisible Women, but I hadn't actually explored the issue of masks. And this was something that women were particularly raising with me, that the masks were just too big for their faces. So it was very difficult for them to get a seal. 
in order to get a seal, many of them had to pull the mask so tight that they were developing sores on their faces or having their impact, their, their ability to actually see impacted, which, you know, is quite important when you're trying to do such a difficult job. Well, really, in any job, I don't think really your sight should be impacted by your protective equipment. Um, but it did seem particularly important in this context. I should say that when I spoke to the NHS, they they very firmly said, no, 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 no worker would be expected to go on the ward, not adequately protected. But that was different to what I heard from some nurses um, in the field. I don't know if that's the term you would use. I think I'm thinking of my mum, who is also a nurse, and she uses in the field because she works um, for Médecins Sans Frontières. So maybe in the field isn't the right word for a hospital. Anyway, in any case, that's a total digression. To go back to your original question, which I realise I've sort of deviated from a bit, about the, the visibility or invisibility of women in the healthcare workforce, that to me, the fact that the majority of the workforce is female and yet the personal protective equipment that we've designed has been, it, it fits men much better, to me shows exactly the level of visibility of, of women in the healthcare workforce, which is not really very visible if we can't even design something for the majority of the workforce and we still treat women's bodies as if they're atypical and niche when they are actually vastly in the majority. Caroline, I know that one of the things that first set you off on the research and exploration that led to your book was your discovery that the classic signs and symptoms of a heart attack that both health professionals and the public are taught are those largely experienced by men and that it can present very differently in, in women. Can you tell us a bit more about that and where it then led you? Yeah, that was just such a shock to me. And, and I came across it when I was researching my first book, the heart attack symptoms that I had always heard about that are certainly emphasised in public health information, that if you're experiencing pain in your chest and down your left arm, that means you're having a heart attack. And to discover that actually women, while they certainly can experience those, those symptoms, they don't necessarily experience those symptoms. And women can more commonly present with breathlessness, nausea, fatigue, what feels like indigestion. And so women don't realize they're having a heart attack. And that is such a massive failure of public health information. But even more shocking to me was the research showing that actually healthcare professionals were not adequately trained in spotting these symptoms, leading women to be much more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. So in the UK, women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. And part of the reason for that is that their symptoms don't necessarily conform to what are thought of as the classic symptoms. As I continued my research, male presentations of disease were seen as the default, were seen as the classic human presentation of a disease. And in any way that the female body might deviate, that was seen as atypical. And in fact, the more common female symptoms are exactly called that. They're called atypical symptoms. When in fact, for women, they're not actually that atypical at all, but they are atypical for men. That was just so shocking to me that, first of all, I had never heard of this. But second of all, that I couldn't necessarily trust a doctor to spot when I was having a potentially fatal heart attack. Alison, is that something that sort of, I know your areas of research are very 
different. Is that something that, that resonates with you? Yeah, I mean, it certainly resonates in terms of historical data because the lung cancer studies were, the, you know, lung cancer associated with studies were the similar. But I'm just thinking recently about the um, conversation we had with Elaine Maxwell, who was doing the long COVID research, and how women are w- middle-aged women who are healthcare workers are most likely to be affected by long COVID. The ready dismissal of their symptoms, and also the dismissal of the uh, the complexity of their symptoms. Basically, if they don't present with some sort of lung problem or cardiovascular problem, they feel that they've been dismissed. And, and so that does resonate quite considerably. And it's it's disappointing that we are still now in the 21st century exploiting the biases that we had in, in the sort of early 20th century. <laughs> you know, things don't seem to have moved on very much. It's incredibly frustrating. And you know, we are still sort of in the infancy of research when it comes to long COVID for obvious reasons. But it does strike me that if we had researched the female immune system more historically, we might be in a much better position now to understand what is going on with long COVID. And, you know, we have known for a very long time that women uh, make up the majority of patients with autoimmune diseases because of the differences between the male and female immune system. But the immune system that we know the most about is the male immune system because, you know, we know more about the male body because it's seen as an easier body to study and it's also seen as a kind of standard body. You know, the number of times I have been told by researchers when I challenge them on, well, why are you doing this study all in males? And I say males, you know, because I'm talking about animals and cells as well as humans. And they say, well, if we find anything in the males then we'll add females later, which mm. just really <laughs> yeah. emphasizes where this is coming from, which mm. is that still in the 21st century, think of the male body as the standard default body and that it's okay to do the preliminary research in that body because anything that happens in the male body must apply to the female body, even though there is so much research showing that that is not the case in male and female cells. cells can respond differently. So why are we still saying that that we can start off in the male body and then add the female body, you know, if we find anything interesting, when that clearly means that we're going to miss out on discoveries that could benefit the female 50%, let's not forget, of the global population. It's not, you know, as much as we may like to talk about the female uh, half of the population as if we're somehow a niche minority, we're really not. There's quite a lot of us. I think there's an interesting uh, sort of intersectionality there with age. And certainly when I started doing clinical trials, you know, a very long time ago now, you know, we used to do sort of lung cancer and ovarian cancer. But, but the recruitment age for the trials was sort of 18 to 50. Hmm. The criteria for research sort of desperately, I think even now actually still needs to be looked at. Caroline, do you think there are other critical areas where women's experiences of healthcare is different to that of, of men? Yeah, I mean, the research very clearly shows this. Mm. So when women present with pain, they are much more likely to be prescribed antidepressants than men. They take longer to be seen in accident and an emergency. Several um, studies, for example, in Sweden and the US have shown this. Recently, there have been some campaigns looking at procedures, gynecological procedures that are carried out 
that many women find to be very painful. And it's very interesting to compare them with procedures that are carried out on men that may have a sort of similar level of, of pain, where the, the procedures that are also carried out on men, the standard is to offer pain relief. Whereas for women, the standard is to say, it's just a bit of discomfort and just pop a paracetamol beforehand and you'll be fine. So that's been very frustrating. So things like with IUD insertion or um, with hysteroscopies, and if you compare them with a the standard of care for, with, for example, colonoscopies, where uh, pain relief is the standard, whereas women are discouraged from asking for pain relief for some of these other procedures. So pain is definitely where there's a very, very clear disparity on the treatment that women get versus the treatment that men get. And this is a problem that goes beyond healthcare in that as a society, we tend to believe men more when they tell us that they're in pain. And women are just not seen as credible in the same way. And it starts incredibly early on. I found this really disheartening uh, piece of research, which looked at how fathers responded to babies crying, depending on whether they were told the baby was male or female. And they rated the male baby as being in more distress than the female baby, depending, you know, it was the same baby, <laughs> uh, but they were told it was male and then they were told it was female and, and the male baby. So this is clearly something, it's a societal level issue. It's not something that's just within medicine, but obviously it matters a lot more in medicine because pain is not something that really can be objectively measured. It is subjective. And so the credibility of the patient in the eyes of the healthcare worker is incredibly important. I'd like to move on, if I can, to talk about your own experience of, of healthcare, because I know you've written in a number of places about having a miscarriage and that experience. And I wonder if you could sort of tell us a bit about that for you, but also I know that that prompted a lot of response from other women contacting you. Yeah, I found it incredibly traumatic. In particular, the thing that was most difficult for me was having to turn up to the same place as all the other women who were whose pregnancies were progressing normally. And so being surrounded by um, women with their massive pregnant bellies and more often than not some toddlers in tow, happy parents who've just delivered a baby, when the horror that is miscarriage, you know, that you, you, you really wanted this baby and then you're losing it and the cells of the baby are falling out of your body into your pants. It was just so difficult having to walk past um, these happy families every time. And the fact that it wasn't just once, I had to keep coming back for blood tests to the same ward that I, I found so incredibly traumatic. But having spoken to other women, I sort of feel like I got off lightly, despite how painful I found it, because there were just some really shocking stories. For a start, I mean, the the whole issue of having to having to miscarry in a labor ward is one that many, many women have raised with me as just being unspeakable, just the worst part of having a miscarriage. And, and several women who have had repeated miscarriages told me that after their first experience, they didn't call the hospital the next time because they didn't want to go through what they went through last time, mm. um, which is obviously potentially incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Um, so one woman 
eventually did have to call the hospital because she was hemorrhaging. So making it a space where women don't want to go when they're going through a medical experience that that could be potentially life-threatening is obviously a bad idea. But there were other just really staggering examples of just thoughtlessness. One woman actually told me she got sent a very cross letter uh, telling her off for wasting NHS resources because she hadn't turned up to her next antenatal appointment. Another woman told me that when she was pregnant again following her miscarriage, the midwife was unable to record her on the hospital computer, the hospital database, because her original pregnancy had never been removed. And so she was recorded, I guess, as still pregnant from the first one. Um, and she, you know, the midwife needed authorization. There are all sorts of, of messages about the language that's used, sort of poor expectation setting, telling them it's just like a bad period or that they, it was just cells, you know, why are you so upset? Or actually, and this kind of ties in a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about women not being believed. There were really surprising number of women who went in while they were miscarrying and the attending, whoever it was, said, are you sure you were pregnant? Why are you here? You're, you're, you're clearly miscarrying, so basically go away. Just a lot of very sort of callous treatment, which I found incredibly surprising because if there's one thing that I think surely most people know is that if a woman is going through a miscarriage, she's upset. <laughs> she's upset, she's bleeding, she may be in a lot of pain, she may be feeling very unwell. And the idea that basic common human courtesy is not the standard of care for these women was really really surprising to me and really really hard to hear and I think first I want to say how sorry I am that that you went through that experience I mean I should say that the people who treated me at the hospital that did not happen to me they were absolutely lovely. They were so kind and, and and as far as they could be because I was miscarrying in a pandemic. So, you know, they weren't allowed to touch me. And they said how sorry they were that they weren't allowed to touch me. And I could see, you know, I could feel their compassion and that meant a lot to me. But a lot of women did not experience that. You know, they, they had this incredibly callous care that, that I just, I don't understand why are you why are you in that job if that's how how you feel about women who are miscarrying i mean i work with i mean mental health nurse by background so i work with women with lots of trauma all the time and birth trauma is one that isn't really well recognized miscarriage late stage losses it's not really talked about it's not really recognized it's not something we even necessarily assess for in mental health and i you know i have close friends as well who have lost children and, and 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 gone through miscarriages and I think some things have changed over the years but it's very much a postcode lottery so I recall a friend of mine who lost her son Gabriel it was a late stage loss just such a like you say very thoughtless in many ways the ways that people spoke about it you know she had a, a funeral and loss leaflet kind of shoved into her hand within an hour of kind of losing her son she had to leave via a back door so she didn't have to kind of like walk past the other mums and babies, but also actually the indignity of, of leaving via the back door, having just lost your child. 
And she was telling me recently, because I was thinking about this episode and, and these kinds of experiences, that actually now there are specialist bereavement midwives and bereavement suites. But that's, again, this postcode lottery. So things are getting better in some areas. There are pockets of practice, but it's not everywhere and it's not enough and, and it's not recognised in other healthcare services and we're thinking about the long-term impact and the long-term trauma that many women carry with them after an experience like this. It's kind of, in many ways, upsetting to hear how things haven't changed over a long period of time and we still have the same issues. I think the thing about the, the letters particularly, those things are not things that are difficult to fix. Mm. We're constantly bombarded with, oh, we should use AI and it's the future. And But if you can't get fundamental tech applications right that send distressing letters to people i mean what i often used to hear it because obviously i used to work in a palliative speciality people getting letters saying they were wasting nhs resources when you know their relative had died it's the same it's the same thing really it's intruding on people's grief and not acknowledging their grief and i think that you know certainly that should be something that is addressed how do we get it addressed alison because i i agree out of all the I mean, I wrote a newsletter about this and I had an eight point plan for mixing miscarriage care, <laughs> fixing, sorry, miscarriage care. And, you know, I, I recognize that some of the requests are more expensive and difficult than others. So, you know, having entirely separate treatment areas, well, that's not going to be, that's not going to come cheap, is it? But things like automating the system so that once you have a miscarriage, that's mm. just noted down and you don't get sent any further letters and you know, your notes are read so that at your future, um, if you, when you next go to the doctor, someone doesn't say, oh, how, you know, how's your babies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that seems such an easy and relatively cost-free fix. As a campaigner, I like to think about what, what are the easy wins? Um, because those are the ones that you're definitely going to be able to get quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And that, those feel to me like very easy wins. And so I would love to hear your thoughts I know that I'm not interviewing you but you know whatever um what are your thoughts on on how we can make that happen because I do feel very very strongly as I'm sure you can tell about this Mm. I would love to if we can't fix anything else fix that one thing that causes needless pain and probably you know costs money someone has to print that letter out and yeah how many (laughs) wasted letters is the NHS sending out you know talking about wasting NHS resources that's a waste of NHS resources certainly the technology exists to do that you know it's that's not the issue most of the trusts at least in England run these big platforms that can that can do that quite simply one of the issues of about the NHS I feel um, and healthcare more generally is it does it does well for lots of people that follow the same pathway and if you don't if you're not on that pathway if you if you take a different course it doesn't serve your needs very well and so I think it's helping people understand and giving giving the resource and you know and, and things like admin teams that would do that work have been massively curtailed mm. you know and, and people don't see people like the admin people as a you know as important in in terms of delivering care but they are because mm. they're that will give you that bad experience of getting an inappropriate letter. I think we need to kind of emphasise that actually they have an important role to play. Unfortunately, they've been disinvested in. A lot of a lot of their work has been outsourced, and that fractures the care that's given. One company will be doing one thing, and another company will be doing another. Mm. So what you have to do is map everything out and find out where the letter's coming from. And that's that's 
can be really resource intensive. We know what the overarching issue is, you know, to kind of cut to the conclusion, it's misogyny in healthcare and how that kind of manifests that's that's been there since healthcare was ever a thing, I suppose, and, and the inception of medicine as the dominant medical field above nursing and, and how that was predominantly men and, and nurses have been predominantly women and, and how that has manifested in patient care as well and that kind of male, female, patriarchal dynamic that plays out. And, and it's still very much the case that medicine is the dominant field in commissioning, kind of construction of policy, um, construction of services, funding, you know, all of that is built around medicine as this kind of still dominant, still patriarchal field and still very much in the kind of patriarchal role over nursing. When nurses do so much of that care, delivery, the kind of hands-on frontline, I suppose, um, for want of a better term, care, I think the answer however that looks in kind of parts and pieces, is to to change that dynamic, to value the voice of nursing more, to value the voice of women more as a, as a profession, I suppose, and, and female, dominant, predominantly female healthcare professions. I think that's part of the answer, but that's a huge piece of work that requires a lot of time, a lot of investment, a lot of good policy. And that's getting the right people in place, the right people with the right knowledge to do the right job to make sure that happens. People who understand this issue, people who want to make it better, people who see that as the source of the issue, because actually it isn't really recognised as the issue. We're having this conversation, we kind of understand this, but getting that to be translated into to actual decision making by the people who make those decisions is, a, is another matter entirely. And and I suppose it all just centres back to how men and women are, are treated and valued differently and, and men and women's issues are treated and valued differently. It's a huge issue that I think is part of or is the solution. But how we do that is a big, big piece of work. And it's something that I think people are trying to chip away at. But it's not even straightforward, even when you do have these people with this knowledge trying to make change. Mm. Mm. Yeah, certainly technical competency, I think, is valued over perhaps advanced communication skills or, you know, even exhibiting empathy, actually. You know, mm. I've worked in, in, in areas like uh, thoracic surgery where exhibiting empathy was kind of almost frowned on, actually. Um, mm. it, it, it's very, very kind of cultural and, and male-dominated kinds of fields. But I think there is the, the fact that, you know, because the more male-associated attributes are more valued. I mean, I, I often find this, I often find this personally that I'm conflicted because my abilities as a, a mathematical modeler are often valued and never questioned. Mm. Uh, whereas if I offered an opinion as a, a nurse, <laughs> I would get a very different response. Mm. <laughs> and that kind of does it for me, really. You know, medicine's over 50% women now, mm. but it's still seen as a... a, a profession of agency a profession of power um a, a sort of male attributes whereas as nursing's very much seen as perhaps more female attributes caring we, we often have this issue that you know policymakers, when there aren't enough nurses think you can just take people off the street and give them a couple of days training and they can perform as a nurse as long as they're kind i think that those those kinds of assumptions are very very entrenched and to improve care we need to not only be willing to challenge those assumptions 
but also engage more with people that experience care. So that power dynamic and that power kind of shift that needs to happen isn't just about men and women in healthcare and the attributes of those professions. It's also about how they interact with the people that receive healthcare because they're not usually active participants. Healthcare is still done to people. And and that, I think, is part of the issue that if people aren't involved in healthcare or can't be because of the power dynamic, it makes it very difficult to do things like feedback on, on what that experience was like. Alison, how do you think we can shift that power dynamic? That's a really big question, isn't it? I mean, I think there's there are some areas that do it well. Certainly, I mean, I, I used to work in oncology, and uh, like you, Rachel, and producing services with patients. Mm. So actually met patients' needs and revolved more around patients was, was a lot more acceptable than doing that in surgery. But it's about whose voice is at the table. That's a really interesting point, Alison, and it's making me think about one of the responses that I get when I have raised, for example, my experience with um, IUD insertion, which was incredibly painful. My cervix mm. went into spasm um, and... Uh, they had about three people try try and do it before someone who actually knew what she was doing came in and, and did it properly. But one of the things that we get told is essentially that it's not a problem, that most mm-hmm. women don't experience any pain, maybe just some slight discomfort. And my question, my sort of answer to that is, well, how do you know? No one ever asked me. No one asked me how painful my experience was how long I bled afterwards when I felt able to have sex again afterwards no Mm. one ever asked me that so how can you possibly say well most women don't experience discomfort when it's not standard that you ask us the other response that I often get is don't talk about how painful it was for you because you'll put other women off which I find sort of very stupid on a number of levels one is that you can't stop women talking to each other we're going to talk to each other but the other one of course is that for all these procedures that some women do find painful like IUD um, assertion or or a smear I've actually never really had a problem with a smear but I know that for some women it can be painful is that they have to it's not a one-off procedure you know women have to then come back again Hmm. and if the procedure is painful and there is no discussion of that no option for a woman to say you know that was actually very painful is there a, a way of making it less painful next time where there's no facility for that where no one is asking the women then surely that's going to create much more of a problem with women not coming forward for their future smears than a few women talking about how the the pain management is not adequate and we need to fix that. I suppose I would just wanted to touch on, you know, the the comment from Caroline and from Alison about how do we know, you know, how, we don't ask women about their experiences. And I don't know if many of you have heard of the uh, website Care Opinion, um, which is an independent feedback site, which is completely anonymous. You know, anybody who has an experience of health and social care, not that I'm plugging them, I have no shares in your opinion, can leave their independent feedback. And how it works is that different trusts and health boards subscribe to Care Opinion as a kind of patient care and quality improvement model. They kind of get awareness of where are the issues, where are the good points of practice, where are the kind of blind spots in our service? 
And I think it's, you know, some services, sorry, some trusts and health boards do sign up to it. Others don't. I know in Scotland, we have kind of universal health board coverage. So we have an awareness and it's a great research tool as well, actually. I used it for my master's thesis. I looked at women's experiences of disclosing gender-based violence or domestic abuse, sexual violence uh, to healthcare professionals. And it was a really great way of kind of understanding from the perspective of women what the kind of issues were when they disclosed these experiences to healthcare staff. And that was all registered healthcare professionals. And I expected this, but it was really overwhelmingly very negative. And that's something that isn't really well captured elsewhere from speaking to women and other pieces of research, just how how kind of prevalent this is, the kind of key areas, the kind of key themes, what the issues were, a lot of the time women being dismissed, being blamed for their experiences, and where those areas of like good and, and poor practice might be. And gynecology came up again and again and again. And one of the themes there was about... Um, women with previous experiences of domestic abuse and sexual violence who um, had appointments for gynecological procedures. And in advance of these appointments, they would call up and ask for some adjustments to be made to make them feel more comfortable. So they were calling up and they were disclosing these experiences, which they don't really need to do. You can ask for this anyway, but it was kind of felt by these women that it made it more likely to be taken seriously. They would disclose these things that had happened to them to somebody on the phone that they'd never met. And they would say, and and so please, can I actually, at the appointment, can I have a a female member of staff examining me? And they would get overwhelmingly positive responses on the phone. People were very happy to, to make these adjustments, to support them, to make them comfortable. But then on the day, it would be a very different matter. Some of those things came down to, you know, staffing issues, communication issues. Maybe there weren't any kind of female doctors or qualified staff available to do the procedure. And they would say and let them know in advance and they would have to kind of keep making new appointments. So getting stuck in this kind of loop and and the difficulty and the trauma of having to keep going through that each time and not knowing if they were going to get somebody who would be able to make them feel comfortable. But some women reported really poor attitudes from staff you know on the day they would go in they'd be dismissed some women even reported and this was not uncommon that they would be undressed lay waiting to be examined and a male member of healthcare staff would just walk in and and it happens out of outside of gynecology too there are other areas where you know this is happening mental health it happens in psychology it happens in in every area that you can really think of where women would need to talk about it or would want to talk about it these really blaming attitudes and i think using care opinion using actual patient feedback has been really useful for me as a nurse working in a gender based violence nursing service to think about what might be the issues that are facing women how can i think about tailoring my training for other healthcare staff to to talk about those issues, to think about those issues. But really, I think it's an investment from different services, health boards in using patient feedback and really thinking about that and really co-producing and co-designing their services. And, and some of these things, you know, like I say, sometimes they were kind of communication or, or workforce uh, based staffing issues. Sometimes it was just that kind of lack of joined up thinking as well that people aren't necessarily even aware of within services and and provision of services until it's highlighted to them. So I think 
I'm always I'm a huge fan of any healthcare professional using these kinds of sites to learn, even from other services that are similar to theirs, even if your service doesn't necessarily subscribe. I would always absolutely recommend that healthcare professionals look at that. Leanne, do you think that generally nurses are good at or, or do advocate for their patients? Because I think that's sometimes my concern that in those circumstances, you know, in some of the situations you've described, and actually some of the ones Caroline described that she's heard about from other women, you know, I kind of feel, well, where's the nurse there? <laughs> why, why isn't the nurse, you know, or the midwife there advocating for that woman? We definitely need to get better. So like I say, my research was overwhelmingly negative and it was about doctors, nurses, whether they were male or female, You know, there are pockets of good practice, particularly in Scotland, where we now have actual specialist gender-based violence nurses and a more coordinated approach across health boards to addressing gender-based violence and women's issues generally and how that kind of affects them throughout their kind of life course. What I saw in my own research is that these attitudes are really pervasive and it, it doesn't really matter, as I say, if it was coming from a man or a woman, it was it was very much the same. Those attitudes are socialised into all of us. And I think it's a big piece of work within nursing to really highlight how systemic misogyny is in healthcare and it and how that is in nursing, unfortunately, too, that we are kind of all socialised into that. Women as well, you know, our kind of internalised misogyny, nobody likes to hear that. It's such a huge issue. Um, particularly when I'm thinking about my own kind of work in gender-based violence. The the statistic that always gets me every single time that really just blows my mind is that male violence is the leading contributor to death, disease and disability in women aged 18 to 44 around the world. That was a World Health Organization multi-country study, I think. And that blows my mind, you know, how that manifests in a healthcare sense is so significant, the kind of chronic issues of disease, disability, chronic mental ill health. And we're really, we know so little about it. We've invested so little time, energy and resources into actually doing anything about this from a healthcare perspective. Time and time again, what I see is that healthcare staff don't recognise the signs when it's actively present in a woman's life. They don't know how to respond to it. So they're missing it over and over again. They're missing opportunities to safeguard. But then from my own research, they don't know how to to respond to a disclosure even of, of even a historic abuse. They are really uncomfortable with it. They tend to fall back on blaming women narratives to make themselves a bit more comfortable at the situation. And so there's this just a huge lack of investment in this issue on all fronts, right from the point of education to practice, policy, investment in services, investment in specialist training, investment in specialist staff. And glad to see it happening in Scotland that you know there's a few of us starting to kind of do a bit of work around this but it's I can see it stretching out ahead of me you know there's going to need to be hundreds of us and and decades of this to really tap into any of it in any kind of meaningful way it's going to take a lot and and it always centers back to that that investment so no I don't think we are brilliant advocates in nursing I think we have a long way to go I think we can be I think we have potential but I think we kind of need to own that we're letting women down. If I could just agree with Leanne on the basis of the messages I've received um, on Twitter and via email from women 
it does seem that it's a problem across healthcare that um, I have had nurses, midwives and doctors all come in for criticism on this front. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously, hashtag not all nurses, you know, because <laughs> the, as I said, the experience that I had was that they were all incredibly kind and lovely and caring as far as they could be in the context of a pandemic. But it is absolutely, there isn't a medical specialism that I haven't come across in these messages of, of, of saying yeah. about talking about the, the carelessness and the callousness um, of the treatment, I'm afraid to say. You know, I think we could talk for much, much longer, but I think there is a lot for us to reflect on on how, you know, both as individuals and, and as a profession, we can make healthcare more more human and we can respond to people. But I, I think in particular, you know, as nurses, we have to be advocates for our patients. We have to be advocates for those who cannot advocate for themselves. And we have to look at ways that we can, you know, enable people to be their own advocates as, mm. as well. Really brilliant conversation. So we could talk for longer, but I'm afraid we have come just about to the end of the podcast. The podcast will be back in two weeks. We'd love to know what listeners would like us to talk about. So please tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. Respond to this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of Nursing Matters. But for this week, thanks to our special guests. So thank you so much, Leanne. Thank you for having me. Always lovely. Always a pleasure. I'm sure you'll be back again to join us sometime. <laughs> and Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And Alison, thank you for your co-hosting. Thanks very much, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.